1: You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, lovely listeners,
2: and welcome back to Skylight. This is the Skylight Books podcast, and I am your host, Kelsey Nolan. Skylight Books is an independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. We are open every day from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. for in-store browsing, curbside pickup, masked in-store browsing, um, and you can, of course, shop online at uh, skylightbooks.com, and you're here for the podcast. We also have a virtual events on our Crowdcast page, crowdcast.io slash skylightbooks, uh, and now on to the show. Joining us today are Ken Quapis. Ken Kwapis is an award-winning director of motion pictures and television. He has directed 11 feature films, among them A Walk in the Woods, He's Just Not That Into You, and Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. His feature debut was Sesame Street Presents, Follow That Bird, starring Jim Henson's Muppets. For television, Quapis helped launch nine series, including The, La- including the Larry Sanders Show, The Bernie Mac Show, and The Office. Among his upcoming feature projects is Sisterhood Everlasting, based on the final book and *Anne*. Brescher's Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants series, and but what I really want to do is direct is his first book that's available for purchase at Skylight Books, and joining him is David L. Ulin, who is the author or, edit, or editor of a dozen books, <laughs> including Sidewalking, Coming to Terms with Los Angeles, which was shortlisted for the Penn Diamonds, I always have a hard time with this, Stein Spielvogel Award for the Art of the Essay. He's the recipient of fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, the Lannan Foundation, and Black Mountain Institute at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Former book critic of the Los Angeles Times. He's an associate professor of English at the University of Southern California and the book's editor of Alta Journal. And I will let them take
3: it away.
0: Great, thank you.
3: Thanks, Kelsey. Hi, Ken, how are you?
0: I'm great. I, I, I have to start by saying I love Skylight and I'm happy to be here Virtually, <laughs> so
3: I love Skylight too, and I love independent booksellers. And I just want to start by encouraging everybody listening to buy your books from independent booksellers. Do not buy your books from the Bohem- behemoth if you can avoid it. Um, support local independent booksellers; they are the backbone and spine of American literary culture. Um, so now that I've put in my little plug, um, let's get let's let's cut let's get right into it. I mean. Um, It's a really interesting book. Um, What I really want to do is direct um, because you do this interesting, you do this sort of interesting structural move where you start chapters with an autobiographical kind of, you know, like an example, and then you kind of use that to move into kind of the practicalities. Um, One of the things that you address right at the outset, which actually seems to me to be a kind of line that moves throughout the whole book, is this question of how does one comport oneself as as a director? You write about that in the first couple pages in the introduction. Um, of the book. And it seems to be the, the kind of driving um, notion, writing from the inside about what it means to wear the mantle. And I wonder if you, we can start by just sort of talking a little bit about that as a way of getting into some of the more specific um, issues that you raise in the book.
0: Sure. Well, I've, I've been directing for, well about, well, about 37 years, actually. And over the past few years, I've been mentoring, I've had the pleasure of mentoring some several up and coming directors. And of course, there's a lot of talk about craft, but working with young directors, what I discovered is what they most want to discuss is things that I never was taught in film school and and questions like, how do you comport yourself as a director? And and what I mean by that is how do you carry yourself, for instance, on a set? Uh, And so a lot of the topics that I explore include you know, how to create an environment, a work environment where people feel respected and acknowledged and and how to uh, be, how to assert authority without being authoritarian. And how do, you know, I mean, again, it, I feel like it's a topic that extends beyond being a film director. I mean, if you're in any management position or any leadership position, I hope that you'll enjoy tales of me struggling to, you know, uh, sort of wrangle a unruly group of, sometimes unruly group of collaborators, trying to get a lot of people with different agendas on the same page. And, and so that's one of the things that inspired me to write the book was just, again, young filmmakers asking me questions that, uh, to, to, add, to address things that I was never taught in film school and that I had to learn uh, on, the, on my feet, often by falling on my face.
3: Why do you think, I mean, I've noticed this too, we don't talk about these things o- that often in, in writing programs and writing classes too. Why, why do you think that, um, that they aren't part of that kind of discussion? It feels to me that in some way, it's not, it's not even just the craft of directing, it's kind of the people management collaborative aspect of directing or artistic work. It feels to me to be an absolutely essential aspect of it, but we kind of overlook it in favor of, let's say, the, the, you know, the personal vision of the artist. Um, I'm curious about that.
0: Well, some of it has to do with you know a sense of how we look at the director as an artist, and I would say that I mean look at it. creating a good work environment is not on most film school syllabi. In fact, I would say it's it's often the opposite. It's that you know if you know enshrined in film lore are nothing but you know stories of you know angry eruptions on the set, you know directors who work a crew to death to get a shot. And, you know, and, and sadly, there are a lot of people in the industry who truly believe, who really believe that you get the best results out of your cast and crew by creating panic and chaos on the set. So I, I wasn't built that way. I'm happy to say, I don't know how to do that. I wouldn't want to do that. And, and so I, I disagree with that approach. And and so you know, again, I, I feel like in my own small way, I'm, I'm sort of, filling the gap, um, you know, that uh, it, that occurs in film schools. I mean, I feel like uh, there are many simple things that a person can do to simply, uh, again, tr- treat a crew respectfully. Like, this is going to sound so simple and almost like a joke, but learn people's names. Yeah, It's like, it's, it's weird. I've been on sets where directors really have no clue and don't know who they don't know the names of the people they're working with. And I mean, how hard is it really? Are you so preoccupied with your artistic vision that you can't learn the names of the people who are carrying it out? It's insane. But but I have observed more than a few directors for whom the crew is basically invisible
3: now you um you go in in the in the book you talk in addition to talking about kind of pragmatic practical work related um ideas and and also um broader artistic ideas um and, you know i, I think there is a, a lot of sort of discussion of kind of visual iconography and um just to make sure i'm remembering the phrase exactly you have that great um sh- that great uh chapter oh the objective correlative thank you that was the one i was looking for I was... <laughs> the phrase that escapes my head, that great chapter on the objective correlative, which, you know, it, it is so important in terms of, I mean, I want you to talk about that example, but it's so important in terms of how character is defined through a simple, small, simple gesture that seems perhaps contradictory at first, but in fact, ends up illuminating the complexity of a character. Let's talk about that. But I also want to jump into some of the practical and some of your own, your own sort of movement, background and movement through um, the art of directing as a
0: career. Well, the, the 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 idea of the objective correlative and the phrase comes from literary criticism. It doesn't come from filmmaking or film criticism. Um, it was actually coined by T.S. Eliot, uh, but it, it, it refers generally to the idea that the meaning of a of a story or the or, or the arc of a character or the subtext, the emotional subtext of a scene can be conveyed through an object or a piece of wardrobe or even a space. And it frankly, it's it's it when I stumbled upon this phrase, I, I just thought it was kind of amazing and, and and it got me very excited to review films that I love and also my own work to see if I consciously or not sort of looked for ways to well look f- sought to you know find objective correlatives for, for instance, character dynamics or relationships. I'll give you one example that I trust that our listeners will know. And that's from the television show, The Office. I directed the pilot of The Office. And one of my jobs was to uh, figure out the the layout of the set, the layout of the bullpen of the Dunder Mifflin Paper Company, specifically where people sat, who faced who. I mean, if you know the show, does Jim and Dwight, do they face each other? Do their desks face each other or not? Uh, Where do the accountants sit? Should people work in cubicles or should it be an open plan? All these questions were things that I was helping to uh, answer. And one of the big questions had to do with Pam and Jim. And, and obviously their relationship, at least at the beginning of the series, is fraught. They obviously are attracted to each other, but she has a boyfriend. She is taken. She will shortly be engaged. So I actually very thought very deliberately about how their desk arrangement could somehow tell the story of their relationship. And so what I came up with was the idea that Pam's reception desk always faces Jim. So she's always looking at him. Okay. But he, on the other hand, is, is sort of perpendicular to her. He's at a 90 degree angle to her. So in order for him to look at her, he must make an effort. He must turn to see her. It's a super simple thing. But it allowed me to create what I think was one of the signature images of the series at the beginning and that's this idea of seeing Jim in profile in the foreground uh, and Pam in the background sort of staring at him with Jim either unaware that she's looking at him or pretending to be unaware that she's looking at him. But again, it's just the simple idea of how their chairs related became an objective correlative of their relationship
3: yeah and it also generates a powerful dramatic tension i 've just been rereading um, the Marilyn robinson novels because she 's got a new novel coming out and in in, in lila the third novel there 's a knife that functions in that way as a kind of um, i don 't know like it 's a signifier but in, in the sense that it, it's a, it's, it carries so, it carries so much metaphorical weight it 's not simply a knife it 's sure. right it's a and I think, you know this and again a very simple kind of um, kind of narrative choice now when you got started um, you got started you tell the story story in the book of your first camera when you were 10 years old and trying to set up a fancy shot on a pool table and knocking the camera off the table and having the, <laughs> the camera get broken. It's a great way for it to direct. So you, to start uh, ambitiously like that, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how, you know, it, it, how, how you knew at 10, um, you know, the, the sense of being seized by something like that at, at a young age and kind of knowing that it was what you were going to want to um, you, you couldn't have known it was going to be your career, but you did know it was something you were going to want to
0: pursue. i I don't remember any specific point during my childhood where I decided I wanted to become a filmmaker. but I did it, as a child, st- start to get a sense that there was somebody, you know, pulling the strings, somebody behind the curtain, somebody who was who was uh, telling the story. And and I did find in my young days that I, I would not only spend my allowance on movies, but I would go to see movies two and three times. And my father in particular was just incensed. What a waste of money to see a movie twice, let alone a third time. But and I actually remember I had a very big argument with him about this point when I I insisted I had to see Arthur Penn's film Little Big Man, like for a third or fourth time. I was just sort of so fascinated by it. And uh I I think by then, this would have been nineteen sixty eight or nine probably sixty nine um I was you know very invested in the idea of being a picture storyteller
3: when you say picture storyteller, you mean working in storytelling stories through a visual medium or is yes. there more more to that than
0: yeah,
3: yeah. Right? um what were the other addition to was it as far as little big man, I love that movie what was I'm curious about the draw i for me it was Hoffman's performance um Maybe primarily, or also the kind of fascination I had with the makeup and the aging process when i was I think that was the first time when i was I must have been ten or so when that movie came out, and it was the first time I had ever really paid attention to those kinds of elements of of visual storytelling that you know that you could you could use makeup and and um, to really age a character to really kind of hone a character that it wasn't just about a character playing themselves playing someone their own age right.
0: I re- What struck me even when I was young about the film was actually its comic tone. And, it, and, and I love the idea that the entire film is about a highly un- unreliable narrator, or, or told from the point of view of a highly unreliable narrator. I hadn't seen a story like that before. It seemed to be on one hand historical, and at the same time, every scene was fake. <laughs> so it was like I was sort of fascinated by this strange tension, which was funny. And um, again, not having, I, I didn't know Thomas, is it burger or Berger? Thomas Berger. I believe novel, it's burger. Burger. it's novel, but I, I attributed a lot of the success of the, you know, in terms of the style, in terms of the kind of slyness of the tone to Arthur Penn. It's a
3: great yeah. book. Yeah, no, it's, it's, one of, it's one of my favorites. I, now just having this conversation makes me feel like I need to look it up and watch it again, because it's been a long time. Um, and
0: if I may, I then, a couple of decades later, I had the pleasure of directing one of its stars, Faye Dunaway, <laughs> co-starring with an orangutan. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> um, I want to
3: I want to ask you 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 know you 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 actually start your first your first professional directing gig was tv right it was an abc afternoons uh, after school special um and then you moved into feature directing and then you moved back into tv directing and um and then kind of now now have kind of have kind of gone back and forth and i'm curious about that dynamic we've talked in the uh, in the past about the, uh, the, the shift in the culture's perception sure. of the balance or the relationship between um, features and and television production and how, you know, TV was once a stigma and now of course is is no longer. Um, for you having worked over this long span of time going back and forth between the media and the media, uh, I'm curious about, you know, your thoughts on that relationship and, you know.
0: Oh yeah, I, and I'd love to share with you a big turning point in my attitude towards TV versus film, I mean, I I started directing in 1983 as a professional director, and at that time, there was such a bias against TV directing among my peers and certainly my film school teachers. And I think that, you know, the general general thought was, if you're a television director, like, good luck getting into features. And if you're a feature director, why, why would you possibly want to work in TV? And I definitely was among the people who, held that bias and i remember in the early 90s it was actually early 92 i had just co-directed the feature film he said she said with my now wife marissa silver and was struggling to get a new feature film off the ground when i was sent uh the script of a half hour comedy pilot. And when I received it, my heart sank. I thought, oh, if I take this job, you know, this is like the slippery slope. No one will take me seriously as a feature director again. And I really didn't even want to open the manila envelope, but I did. And I read the title page and it was the pilot of the Larry Sanders show. And
3: and you had been familiar with—I mean, you were familiar with—it's Gary Shandling's show, which is obviously a very different Gary, show, but it's kind of the precursor to that show.
0: Absolutely, although it's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's Gary Shandling's show could not—I mean, they—they are completely opposite in approaches. And when I read the pilot of the Larry Sanders' show, I was—I was astonished because it—it it not only felt more—I mean, by the way, Gary wrote it and along with wonderful writer Dennis Klein; they were the co-authors of the pilot, and. When I read it, it, it not only was so sharp and intelligent, I mean, sharper than, forget other shows, it was sharper than any movie playing in town that, that moment. It, it felt like it, it was, these, these people were kind of reinventing the game a little bit. But what really struck me is, again, tone. And the characters were such complicated people. And I remember I literally remember reading the script thinking, "Am I supposed to like these people?" And at the center of the ensemble, of course, is uh, Gary's character, Larry Sanders, who is you know frankly at times <laughs> thoroughly sort of a, a bit reprehensible and I thought wow this is this is something I have not experienced before in a show. And so I jumped on it, and I'm happy to say that that show is, you know, now thought of as a harbinger of, you know, the changes, you know, in in how people tell half-hour stories. Now I'll just give you, I mean, just to trace the arc, you know, from Larry Sanders to, you know, shows like Fleabag or Atlanta, or a show that I worked on, and I'm very proud to say I worked on this. I worked on Tignataro's show One Mississippi, which, again, that that you know, it, it, yes, it it is a comedy, but it it deals with such tough material. And Tig, you know, has such a genius for finding humor in the most dire experiences. And, but that, I feel like all of that, all of that is part of the legacy of the Larry Sanders show. So at at that point in my career, it was like, you know what, all bets are off. And now, of course, everything's flipped. I mean, now you have people who make their first feature film in order to use it as a springboard to create series. Right, so. and do
3: you, do you think, I mean, I know we've talked a little bit about this too, but do you, what do you think um, the pandemic or the the potential aftermath of the pandemic? I mean, of course, we don't know what that's gonna look like, but certainly the pandemic has shut down production. Now production is kind of coming back. Um, yeah. But looking, you know, people are looking at kind of smaller bore productions, smaller cast, et cetera. Um, you know, there seems that there have been a number of kind of revolutions, some technological, some otherwise, that have changed the way we think about this. The development of, um, you know, personal computer and, you know, video editing software, um, the, the development of the high res phone, that you can shoot shoot a feature on your phone now, which makes it much more accessible than when you had to buy 35 or 16 millimeter film stock. Now we're facing a situation where it's hard to get um, a big cast of people together. Um, You know, it's a weird question to ask because it's, I'm asking you to prognosticate something that nobody knows the answer to. But if you were going to, if you were imagining it, what do you, where do you imagine things going in, let's say the next six, 12 months?
0: I mean, I, I, I'm not sure I'm going to be a good prognosticator. But I, I will say what I'm worried about. Um, my, I'm, because I love both series and feature films. I love going to the theater. I love watching series at home. And my biggest concern is that when the pandemic is over or whatever over means, that people will have fallen out of the habit of going to a movie theater. And I'm worried about long-form narrative in general. And of course, there are obviously features that are made at, for the theaters that are now being debuted on streaming uh, services, and that's fantastic. But I just, you know, overly, I was concerned already before the pandemic. And I, about certain genres in particular, I feel like their studios, it seems, stopped making comedies. Yeah. Or they stopped. they certainly stopped making romantic-themed comedies. And I'm sensitive to that because I've directed a couple myself. Um, on the plus side, I guess, is if, you know, if you are given the, these new parameters, for instance, I've, I've been on Zoom calls with producers and studio people who say, come up with characters, or excuse me, come up with stories that only involve two characters. Well, maybe there will be a proliferation of interesting, intimate character-driven stories, you know, maybe we will see the emergence of a new Eric Romer, you know.
3: Right, exactly, that which would be, um, which would be wonderful uh, if that was the way it went, you know. Yeah, Um, yeah, I'm I'm curious, I mean, I'm curious about this in terms of, uh, we, who knows, but I agree with you, I think, you know, my, one of my concerns is the sort of, um, the falling out of the habit of for want of a better phrase, like the public spectacle or the public, mm-hmm. the public gathering, the, the shared artistic experience, whether that be theater or concert or, or, um, or film, you know, movie theater experience. And I don't know. I mean, I, you know, it's hard to say what people will be comfortable with.
0: It, it's, it's very difficult to guess, but I all I can say is even before the pandemic, I mean, you know, things have changed so much. I mean, the idea of, um, having to choose between whether to watch a film like the Irishman in a theater or on TV or, or in many cases in the country not having the choice yeah you know and and it's it's impossible for me to imagine not having the pleasure of watching a film like Roma on the screen yeah um, and it's also it's impossible to imagine not having the pleasure of being in a packed room full of people enjoying a hilarious film a, you know bridesmaids
3: you know yeah yeah, no, I, I that, that collective experience, I, I agree with you. There's nothing quite like it. I want to go back to, uh, just for a second, to Gary Shandling and Larry Sanders, because mm-hmm. I think, you know, you do this amazing bit at the very beginning of the chapter you write about him. You open the chapter with Shandling speaking, and um, I'll assume we're... Doing this for adults, so I can use the his language. But he, I'm not an asshole. Gary Shanling insisted, but I have the potential. And what you know, what he's doing is he's talking from the point of view of Larry Sanders about what the kind of um, dramatic tension of the series is. Right, that the center of it is this character who is um, you know has the as you said has the potential to go off. But you also talk about how the, the 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 real draw of the show, which is what I loved about it as a viewer, was that you're behind the scenes. You know that you're in you're backstage. Um, you know, we all know what that talk show looks like from the other side of the screen. And we know what kind of role everybody's playing when, when the camera is rolling. But it's the, it's the seeing it from behind the scenes. And you, you cite this example um, where you went, um, where you were in the green room at the Tonight Show um, with Shanling sort of towards the end before Carson retired. And Doc Severinsen walks in wearing a T-shirt, not wearing his trademark suit. You say is almost unrecognizable, and he's complaining about the coyotes in, that are, you know, in, in his yard and how he wants to kill them all. And um, and Shandling turns to you and goes, "That's the show, right? That's the show." And there's something so powerful about these po- people with polished images, kind of dropping the facade and just being who they are. I'm, I'm, you know, I thought that was just a great example of what, how that, how that, uh, the DNA of that show, I guess.
0: Well, part of it, part of it was the, the contrast between how people carry themselves in front of the camera and and how they behave once the cameras are turned off. And that obviously gives the show a lot of energy. But there was also, the Doc Severinsen story was also speaks to something that Gary was very interested in as a storyteller. And that was just sort of inconsequential, you know, like ephemera, like the little, you know, throwaway moments, you know, that take place backstage. Things that don't move the plot forward just, you know, kind of kind of throwaway comments. And he just loved the idea of not only uh, the two of us getting to hear Doc Severinson in an unexpurgated moment, but also that it was like, it was just sort of a non-consequential moment as well. But I do want to go back to I'm not an asshole because the key was, is I, I, that was, that took place, that conversation took place during my job interview to get the job to direct the pilot episode of the larry sanders show and i and i asked gary if he could give me a kind of a, a i don't want to necessarily call it a mantra but sort of could he boil down the show it, to a sentence like what's the what is the overarching idea of this show if i'm ever confused as a director what can i kind of remind myself what's the what's the main idea here and he thought about it and he was very happy and excited to sort of think about how to boil down his new creation, and that's when he turned to me and said, this show is about whether or not I'm going to become an asshole. I'm not an asshole, but I have the potential. And I remember in the moment thinking, who is he talking about? Yeah. I wasn't sure, <laughs> so, and, 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 and as I write in the chapter, it was very quickly, I realized that the, the, this, this sort of gray area between Gary and Larry was the real subject. Of that television show, and I think it's it, it it to me a uniquely personal show as a result.
3: No question. I mean, and this raises a couple of things. I mean, I do want to ask you a little bit about meetings because you have that great chapter early in the book where you kind of go through this, the the variety of kinds of meetings mm-hmm. that you can have. But before we before we get to that, I want to talk a little bit about particularly in a series, right? Because in a feature. Um, you're in a constrained temporal space. You're in a couple of hours. You know, you're know you gonna tell this whole story over the course of a couple of hours of, or let's say 120 page screenplay. In the case of a series, and particularly a series like Larry Sanders, which goes on for a number of seasons, that narrative arc, such as it is, is really open-ended. You're not, you, know, you don't know when the show is gonna end and you wanna be able to develop. Um, you're not just doing a series of 30 minute episodes that exist in a kind of timeless, um, landscape where there's not a progression from one episode to the next. So mm-hmm. what are the, you know, in terms of kind of the mechanics of developing that long form and open-ended narrative, I know you're working with a crew of writers and all of that, but I mean, the team, um, what, what, you know, how, how is that different? What's it, what's it like to build that long open-ended narrative?
0: Well, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna switch gears only because I, I worked on the Larry Sanders show for two seasons. I did 13 episodes, I think I did 13 episodes. Um, but I didn't stay with it longer, but I, I, I'll just to switch gears to the office for a second because I helped launch the show and then I came back at the end to direct the series finale of the show. And the one thing I did notice, the series finale is is nearly 90 minutes long. And what I noticed is not so much about the different individual character arcs as, as I noticed that over time, um, secondary and tertiary characters became more and more popular so that there were just more storylines there were more storylines and everyone you know that and, and again i think in a popular ensemble show what often happens is people get more and more invested in in i don't want to say minor but i'll say sec- again secondary tertiary characters and uh and as a result uh you know, I, I I mean it's wonderful, but I was so you know startled you know coming back to the show after a while to see how fully developed those character characters' storylines were. Characters who, by the way, at the, in the pilot had no lines, had no character, right.
3: so and many cases, it. right, were not actors. I mean, or were, had not been prof. Were not in right. many, but in some cases had not been professional actors. They just you know they ended up sort of in. Inhabiting and developing those um, those those roles, right. but I would imagine that's also you know for the writing staff that gives them juice as well. I mean, you obviously aren't going to write to a character that nobody in the audience cares about, but it opens up the potential um, plot and character development aspects of the writing because you, you're not just writing about the same two or three characters. You have a broader a broader brush.
0: I again, I'm going to uh, you know credit Greg Daniels for one among many things that he did wonderfully is that he, he made the choice to actually embed within the ensemble several writers.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: So B.J. Novak, Paul Lieberstein, Mindy Kaling uh, play characters, but they are also key writers on, on the writing staff. So I think what happened and you'd have to ask them more specifically, but my sense is that because they were interacting with the whole group right from the get go, that again, smaller parts or parts with uh, you know characters who had no name or dialogue <laughs> suddenly grew more quickly than they might otherwise if if a writing staff had been you know miles away in another office
3: yeah no, I think the organic growth of it is because it is one of the few shows that I think I watch pretty consistently throughout its run without kind of feeling that it was recycling itself or without getting bored. And and it was a long run. Um, I want to go back to the notion of meetings um, because everybody I know, myself included, hates meetings. (laughs) <laughs> you break down, um, you know, in the chapter on meetings, both in terms of the necessity, you break down meetings in, in a really interesting way. You know, the, the self or the, the kamikaze meeting, right? The, um, you know, the one at the end I'm, where you talk about, you know, the careful what you wish for, where you make an impassioned pitch, a really carefully constructed impassioned pitch for a project that you simply don't care about. And they say yes. And then you walk out of there going, oh, like, oh God, now I have to do it. Um, <laughs> so I'm curious about, you know, meetings are obviously a huge part of this. Nobody... I, as far as I know, teaches people how to comport themselves in a meeting. So it really is something that you learn um, by doing. Um, let's talk about kind of meetings, their pratfalls, their importance, and kind of what your tips
0: are for people in terms of meetings. Well, again, the, the chapter mainly focuses on bad meetings, actually. Yeah. And yeah. as I sort of do a breakdown of, of like horrible meetings that I've endured. And for instance, the kamikaze meeting is one that i define as a meeting where you know halfway through you actually decide you don't want to do the project and announce that you don't want to do the project and i've only done that once but i did i was actually meeting at a studio to direct a a, a, a studio feature and in the middle of the meeting I said you know what <laughs> I hate to say it I'm the wrong person for this job and, and then uh,
3: they tried to convince Then they start then pitching they, you right?
0: <laughs> well I, I weirdly enough my, my being candid about that put them on the defensive because they thought it was somehow a referendum on the project itself they were suddenly pitching the project to me but um but I would say that the two big tips um I I, I guess the two big tips I'll, I'll mention right now is is, is one is I, I often when I'm going into a meeting, whether it's to get a job or to try and convince someone to you know, spend money on a project, um, is I, I often think about my, my what my perceived weakness is and hit it head on. And uh, again, that I'll just give I'll, I'll just repeat the example that I use in the, in the book, and that is that when I interviewed with the producer of the film, The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, I. I led off by saying I'm not a teenage girl, yeah. and 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 I'm not in the demographic that th- this film is probably aimed at. So I right away I just didn't want to you know, beat around the bush. That was like that's actually probably something that the in, the person interviewing me was thinking about. Now I, I there's a longer answer about than what I did to. Uh, make the producer feel comfortable and excited about me directing it. But I think the main thing is right, right from the get-go, I said, I, you probably are thinking this and and I'm acknowledging it. Right. And, and the other thing that has the, the next tip, and again, I'm going to, I may give this a little short shrift because it's a big, we could have a whole discussion about this, but I actually think it's important in a meeting to occasionally be upfront about what you don't know and 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 I think not knowing or being unafraid of saying what you don't know can be a major strength in a lot of situations in in you know both on the set but definitely in a meeting and there's definitely been times where i I was upfront with somebody about where i wasn't i didn't have expertise and it disarmed them and in a positive way mm-hmm. um and, and I'll mention just a brief, you know. I I interviewed with Jim Henson to direct the film Sesame Street presents Follow That Bird. It was my first feature film. And I, at one point early in the meeting, I just was very candid. I said, I've I've never directed a puppet in my life. I have no idea how to direct a puppet. Yeah. And that could have been the end of the meeting, but I think he was so disarmed by the candor that he said, Well, He goes, Well, just think of puppeteers as actors. Talk to puppeteers like they were actors. And then we went in, then we got involved in a a discussion about effectively how do you direct a puppet. But um, I mean, that's an example where, again, being candid about what you don't know is a strength and a good tool in a meeting.
3: Yeah, I always, it's funny, I always encourage students to do the same. Don't pretend you know everything. There's no shame in not knowing Mm -hmm. everything. And it can be disarming because interviewers are often so, um, they're so ready for the interview subject to have an answer to everything that when they see you being yourself and honest and unfiltered in that way, often you end up with a, with a positive response. How does that work on, on the set? I mean, again, this comes back to what we were talking about at the beginning about the, the collaborative nature of production. Um, one of the things I really admire about the book and completely agree with is the idea that you, know, you, you, you get good people to work with and then you let them do their job. Um, you don't micromanage. Um, you know you trust your people you don't second guess you know you have that great anecdote about you know when you're in the editing room and you know don't be like you should have cast somebody else because <laughs> <Right. laughs> this is what you've got um, but in terms of building that collaborate that collaborative team and kind of the trust that's necessary where they know you are sitting at the top of the of the pyramid as the director but you know you're your um, cinematographer etc like they know that that they are free to kind of do their own creative work um, what's the process of building, uh, uh, how does that process get built? And do you have, and are there some examples of, of things where you've been presented um, with an alternative, let's say, during the middle of a production by, by, um, by someone that you hadn't thought of, but that you, you wanted to use?
0: Well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of ways to answer that question. I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll just talk about one example. And that is that, I mean, I feel like as a director, you don't need to be an expert at every craft, you don't need to be an expert at costume design, you don't need to know lenses, you don't need to know know, how to light the scene, but your authority lies in the emotional content of the scene, you are the designated storyteller. So I I sometimes feel like um, it's easy to trip up as a director by doing someone's job for them, telling a, a cinematographer what kind of lens to use telling a costume designer something about their craft that you don't need to. What you need to do is represent the emotional content of the story precisely and let them translate it. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and and frankly, it, it, it's always going to get better results. Now you, you may have a vision. Hopefully you do have a vision. But you know it doesn't mean that you don't want to uh, kind of activate people to not simply embrace your vision, but own it and kind of make it their own. Yeah. And so the, re- the way to do that is not to tell people what their job is. And, and um, again, there's a hundred different examples, but I I, I just I would just say that it's easier, for, I mean, and by the way, talking about costume design, I'm like the last person to talk about costume design. I'm, I don't know from clothes, I, style is very foreign to me, <laughs> and, yeah, and I, 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 of, share,
3: I share that with
0: you. <laughs> a of, I, have a, I have a big closet full of t-shirts. The, uh, but I, but what I do feel comfortable saying to a costume designer is what what's driving a particular character, what this character's outlook is, what, what are the circumstances that shape this character's life and letting them run with that. And that's exciting. And I'm frankly, I, I'm happier to let, let someone you know, why not energize your collaborators? So anyways, that's one, one of many examples of like how to start to build a sense of, uh, again, not simply, you know, collaboration, but to actually get people to really bring their A game.
3: Yeah, No. now apropos of collaboration, I would be remiss before we, um, before we go, if I didn't ask you about, you've co-directed, and you've co-directed with, um, with your spouse. And so, I mean, I don't know that that, you know, that that's any different from co-directing with, with um, someone else, but I'm curious about that experience of that kind of level of collaboration. That's, you know, that, 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 if you are the kind of, you know, the designated storyteller as the director, and then there are two directors collaborating. Now that movie um, was a back and forth in, in a variety of ways, but, I, but just in terms of the sort of the sharing or the collaboration on the designated storyteller, how is that experience different um, or creatively say from, uh, from a film in which you are the sole director?
0: Well, uh, that film He Said, She Said is about two distinct points of view. Yeah, uh, the two characters played by Kevin Bacon and El- Elizabeth Perkins. So you see essentially the same story told from each of their points of view. And, and and Marissa and I wanted to also tell the story with two distinct directorial points of view. So in a way, part of our job as collaborators was to, to uh, give, e- give each other some space to create our own visions for how to tell those stories. So that's very different than uh, there are certainly a lot of cl- uh, co-directing teams who are on the set working on the same scene together. But when Marissa and I co-directed that film, just to to give you one example, if I was working with the actors, Kevin and Elizabeth, uh, Marissa would keep her distance, watch what I'm doing, but she would not talk to them. And when she stood up and did either her version of the same scene or a, a scene from Elizabeth's version of the story, I would lay back and watch what she was doing. And uh, again, I, I think what was exciting about it was uh, how we uh, sort of surprised each other directorially, mm-hmm. and the uh, and her stuff is her version is great. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well,
3: this has been really wonderful, Ken. Thank you so much you. for um, for a really fascinating
0: conversation and good to, good to talk with you. Thank you, and again, thank you to Skylight for having us. I yeah. loved it.
2: Yeah, thank, thank you guys. That was really lovely. Um, Ken, big fan of all, your, of all your films, of all your shows. So glad that we can talk about your book, too. Um, and David, of course, you're a, a dear friend of Skylight and a good pal of mine. And um, so just so happy to have, have you both. Just as a reminder, uh, Ken's book, But What I Really Want to Do is Direct, is available for purchase at Skylight Books and, of course, all of David's books as well. Um, are available for purchase. So you can do so online at skylightbooks.com. Thank you everyone for listening and thank you guys for joining us.
1: Take care. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.
0: I see.